Well, thanks, Drew. I know that's super nerve-wracking. I told him, I was like, bud, don't be nervous. Everybody's just thankful that they're not reading. <laughs> so I really, really appreciate that. So proud of all of our young folks who come up and read and, and share and for the worship team and all the kids, ministry leaders and all that are in the back. Uh, everybody who's serving to be a part of this family. Well, hey, um, before we kick off, let me pray for us and just take a time and I want to give you just a moment to pray and talk to the Lord. I don't want to just pray for you, um, but just take a moment. Just ask God to open up your heart to whatever the Word says. And I know a lot of you guys are coming out of long weeks, tough weeks, some of you good weeks, some of you sunburnt weeks, whatever the case may be. Um, but we just want to be here today and just be present so the Lord can do what He wants to do in our lives, okay? So give you a moment to pray, and then I'll gather us back. Well, Father, we are so thankful that the sun is shining. We get to live in a place that is constantly reminding us of your creative power and your goodness. We uh, just come to you this morning as a family of God, your family, seeking your face, just asking that you would help grow us and change us. We're still not what we want to be. A lot of us were exposed to that. We had sin in this past week that just made us feel shame and guilt, and we've got burdens that we're carrying, life circumstances, friends that we've lost, cancer that we've been diagnosed with. We've got broken relationships. There's just a lot of pain, a lot of sin has caused a lot of pain. And God, we just ask for your help today as we dive into 1 Corinthians 6 and talk about what it means to reconcile with one another. But thank you, God, first and foremost, that you have reconciled us with yourself a feat that we could not accomplish. And so we pray that as transformed people, as people who've been reconciled, that you would help us to learn how to lovingly reconcile with one another. Be with us, Lord. Help us to see and understand and then use me however you see fit. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we're back in 1 Corinthians 6. And if you guys have been here since the beginning, you heard me say a couple times that uh, the key word for 1 Corinthians that I shared with us as a church family is correction. The whole letter is about correction. And a good short outline that I memorized to help me understand the whole book is it's made up of divisions, disorders, and difficulties, okay? Can you imagine having a letter written to you that is nothing but correction about divisions, disorders, and difficulties? It'd be kind of a bummer. Uh, and so we're reading this letter that was written to another group of people who were really struggling. And every single week that we've come together to look at 1 Corinthians, it's been basically, what's the problem this week, right? What's the problem this week, Corinthians? What have you done wrong this time? And today we're in what's called the, I would say, the disorder section. And the Corinthians are struggling uh, with taking one another to court. They've got conflict. And in their conflict, in their grievances with one another, They've gone so far as to take each other and sue one another and take them to public court, all right, to deal with this conflict. Now, that shouldn't make any sense, and the reality is that's probably not relevant to you guys here. It's not likely, at least I hope not, that you guys are going to be suing one another and taking each other to court over personal grievances. Now, are there reasons to take people to court? 
absolutely. You kill somebody, we're not just going to settle that in-house, okay? We're going to have to bring in some legal people to handle that stuff. But the reality is personal grievances, there's no reason why they should end up in court. And you guys would all agree with me. But how often do we take one another to the court of public opinion? You know what I'm talking about? Well, let me show you. Jake, you want to come on up? It was supposed to be Zach, and then Zach backed out on me. So just going to call that out right now. All right? And now it's Jake. You can stand over here. What this looks like is we do things uh, like this. So we get in a conflict with one of our buddies, okay? And what we do is we're offended by that. And I can't believe you would treat me like that. So what we do is we establish identities and labels for them. You're like, well, you know what? You, you're, you know what? You're a drunk. Like, who cares what you have to say? Right? You're not sober-minded. Or say, man, he, he lied to me one time. He's just, he's just a liar. That's all he is. And so we go to our friends. We tell them, oh, yeah, he's a liar. Yeah, you agree with me? And we get a jury around us of people who are like, yeah, he did this, and that's what he's like. Right? We're like, oh, yeah, he's just, he's just an, an adulterer. Why would you ever trust him? Why would anybody marry him or date him? Don't trust that guy. That's who he is, because he hurt me and offended me, so I'm going to continue to place labels on my brother. Have you ever experienced this, seen this happen to you? And what ends up happening is when these labels get put on us, it has an ability to warp and change how we feel about ourselves. Now, I'm not all about how you feel about yourself, but the reality is, imagine when these are getting placed on you all the time, how is Jake probably going to start to respond? Well, he's going to create some labels. Well, screw you, Greg, right? He's like, well, you're this, and take a label, stick it on me. Well, you're this, and you're this, and it creates a lot of division between us, doesn't it? In the midst of doing this to one another in the church, where I go grab a jury of people around me, and I say, well, Jake's, Jake's just like that, man. Look, at, look who he is, and this is the way he acts. Why would we even give him time? Don't let him serve in that ministry. Do you know who he is? We're setting something on that person that even Jesus doesn't set on them if they follow Christ. Now, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Thanks. Everybody say thanks, Jake. Yeah, you can keep those. So, just so everybody knows. No, I'm just kidding. Why do we do this to one another? Why do the Corinthians do this to one another? Why do they take each other to court? I think James chapter 4 says it well. It's selfishness. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You want something so bad. If anybody gets in your way, you are willing to take them out, take them to court, get a leg up over them. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. It is all about you and your world. The reason why there's so much conflict, so much division, disorder, and difficulty in the church at Corinth is because the Corinthians like themselves some Corinthians, right? You ever heard it? You know, I like myself some me. And when that happens and you get so focused on yourself, everybody else becomes an obstacle that gets in your way. So if they offend you, you've got to take them out. And one of the ways that we try to take people out is through taking them to the court of public opinion. Do we not do that in the church? When we do that, we're showing that we have forgotten something. What have we forgotten? 
What we're showing and what the Corinthians are showing is that they have gospel amnesia. They have forgotten what the gospel says about ourselves. So today, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 6, see this group of people who have gospel amnesia, forgot what gospel says about them, what their identity really is. And we're going to look at it in three swings, okay? So this is the first. We're going to look at our forgotten identity first, because really this is an identity issue. We're going to talk about conflict and competence, and then we're going to talk about a reminder of identity and how we remind ourselves. So let's look at verse 1. Forgotten identity. When we forget who we are in Christ, we don't respond to conflict like Christ. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? All right, all of you know that grievances or conflict is inevitable, right? If you just get around any sinner, there's going to be problems. Married people, right? When you moved in together, was it just beautiful and wonderful and everything fit together like puzzle pieces? No, it like went together like broken glass, right? It's just like, ah, right? It causes problems. When sinners get together, there will be conflict. And here's the thing, y'all, even in the church, and that should not surprise you, okay? Newsflash, you are a sinner. Newsflash, I'm a sinner. You hang around me long enough, I'll let you down. Your feelings are gonna get hurt, okay? Now, you can do what a lot of people like to do, uh, like Proverbs 18.1 says, and isolate yourself. Go and hide on an island. Go hide at the end of the South Fork. Go hide in your closet. But there's lots of things wrong with that. Number one, it's not missional, right? Number two, you're doing it because you're in fear. You're being selfish. And number three, you're just going to turn out to be a crazy person who talks to themselves and argues with themselves all the time. You still have conflict, okay? You're still going to have conflict. It's just you alone on your little island. Conflict is inevitable. And that's true in the Corinthians days as well as in our days. But what we do about it is what matters most, okay? The Corinthians are the most inconsistent, selfish, prideful group that we see in the New Testament. And they're inconsistent. A couple weeks ago, you guys were here, we talked about there was a man who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmom, all right? That's a problem, but the Corinthian church failed to address it and do something about it. Now, they have these personal grievances with one another, and they're going to the court. Is that a little inconsistent? It's like, guys, you should address this, and why don't we deal with this in-house? But we do this all the time. I do this all the time. And so what this can look like for me is uh, when somebody hurts my feelings or comes against me, uh, Greg, because I am a guy who's really quick with words, I was trained by the samurai of words, my mother, um, how to respond quickly and aggressively with what I think about you. And, uh, and I was taught well. And so what ends up happening is well, you'll say something about me and I'm like, well, hold on, hold on a second. What about this in your life? And I lawyer up. Do you do that? Oh, yeah. I lawyer up. And what I do is, like a lawyer, I'll start to make my case for why you are wrong. And you should not even have that opinion of me. And then what I'll do is I'll go gather friends. I do this, y'all, all the time. Like, man, that guy, he acts like this. You see, you see the way he was treating me? Man, he's just a punk. Like, I don't even know why people go to his church. I don't know why they act like that. And I'll build up this whole case. And, uh, and then, once I've got my whole jury agreeing with me, then I'll cast my verdict. They are guilty. 
And you guys, some of you do this. Either you do it loudly or you do it quietly, okay? My wife is the complete opposite, all right? She's going to quietly do it. Some of you, you're going to quietly do it. You're not going to be loud and outspoken like me. I showcase my sin just out there for everybody. Some of you, you keep your sin on the inside. They say, well, they're just this way. And you're in your car and you're thinking about them and you're just like, this is who they are, right? And you're already creating a division between you and them. You've lawyered up in your head and heart. That's just who they are. Okay? But this, that type of action in the church doesn't make sense. It does not line up with the identity that Paul gives them in verse 1. What does he say that they are? Starts with the S, rhymes with ain'ts. Anybody? Saints, okay? Three of you. I gave you all the evidence you needed. All right? Saints. He calls them saints. What is a saint? A saint that's so funny. A saint is a called out one or a holy one. That is who they are. And they were made holy. We were made saints. We were called out. We were made holy. Was, did we do it on our own? Christians, did we do it by ourselves? Did we make ourselves holy? Do we separate ourselves from the world to follow Christ? No. God called us out, drew us out. He saved us. It's by the power of God, the grace of God, that we are called saints. And that is the identity that Scripture gives to us. Us sinners. It's given to us. But it's not just an identity. Sainthood is a mindset. It's a lifestyle. We live as saints on a daily basis. And so what that means is we do not submit anymore to a world that has its own ways and just determines its own ways inconsistently like the Corinthian church. This side over here feels this way. This side over here feels complete opposite. Everybody just choose to do yourself, do you, whatever you want to do. We rebel against that and say we actually submit to God, the one who called us, the one who gave us an identity, the one who redeemed us, okay? And so we live a different type of lifestyle as saints. That's not news. You should know that. So what does this look like? Well, this past week, I got to have a conversation with a couple that in a couple weeks that I'm going to be marrying in North Carolina. And we're talking on the phone about, you know, all their wedding stuff and all that. It's a short conversation for me, all right? And we're just talking about the message and all that. Well, hey, at the end, I said, hey, I got one more question I want to ask y'all. And it might be the most important one. They're like, okay, what is it? I said, hey, is there any reason that you would divorce the other? Any at all? And it got quiet, kind of like this. And finally, the young lady said, well, maybe if you cheated on me. And I said, okay. Anything else? And they didn't have anything. I was like, okay, cool. That's awesome. Let's get that in the vows. And they're like, what? I was like, well, I'm not going to let you just say until death do us part, when really you've got some other options. So when I get there, this better be in your vows. Till death do us part or you cheat on me, I'm with you. And she's like, huh? And I said, listen, I want you guys to go read Ephesians chapter 5. And as you guys go read Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to spend time in the gospel. I want to see how God ties the gospel to marriage. But before you do that, let me tell you what my answer would be. And do not for a second think that I'm being arrogant. That my answer to that question is, till death do us part and nothing else. There is not a single thing that Bonnie could do to me her family, or anything where I would divorce her, period. Decision has been made. And the decision has been made not because I'm such a great guy. It's because I have a great God 
who no matter what I do, no matter what my sin is, he will never turn from me. Do you know the Bible says that he is the groom and the church is the bride? I'm the church. You are the church. He's saying, I'm with you. I have covenanted and vowed to stand with you till you die. And then for eternity, I will be with you. Jesus has already made his decision, is what I told this young lady. So I've already made mine. And I make it because of what the gospel says. We are saints. We have a different ethic. We have a different way of living, a different courtroom. Forgiveness has already been decided. If you follow Jesus, you've vowed to forgive. Let me give you an example. Uh, a month or so ago, a good friend of mine, Natalie, came, uh, gave me a phone call. She called me, uh, which is unusual. She doesn't usually call me. So we were talking on the phone. I was like, hey. She's like, hey, I need to own something with you. When uh, you were coming back, I was placing labels on you of who I thought you were. I thought you were young. I thought you were being arrogant. I thought you were running in pride. Just the post-it notes. Boom, boom, boom. And it, it's not that the post-it notes were wrong. Don't hear me defend myself. What Natalie wanted to apologize for was, that's not the way of a saint. And she called me in in tears, said, hey, would you please forgive me? That was wrong. Guess what? My decision was already made. I said, Natalie, you are absolutely forgiven. Now, does it hurt to have people place labels on you? You bet it does. It hurts. But I was so thankful that I had a saint as a sister who would call and say, let's make this right. And not only that, as a saint, she lives a completely different lifestyle. She went to the people that she had, her jury, and she said, guys, I made a mistake. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? I shouldn't have said that. That, to me, is an example of a follower of Jesus. Do you understand? The Christians in Corinth were operating by this ethic. They were taking God off of the throne, they were taking the gospel out of the conversation, and they were making themselves judges, and they were going to public, worldly court systems to help affirm their selfish desires. And this is what Paul says in verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? What does this mean? Basically what it means is it's in some way and in some uh, aspect, we're gonna join Christ in judging the whole world. In Revelation chapter 20, verse four, it says, John says, I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. So in some fashion, that's gonna happen. And along with that, we're gonna somehow, we're gonna be a part of the final condemnation of fallen angels. Clearly not the angels that are with God, but with fallen angels. We're gonna be a part of that judgment. And so the point that Paul is actually trying to make here is this. Why in the world would you go to a world that eats its own, destroys one another, has a completely different ethic, whom you're going to one day stand and judge? Why would you go to them to have judgments for you? Can you not handle this? Friends, can we not handle this? Can we not be like Natalie and go and have the conversation? 1 Corinthians 6, 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing 
in the church. The reason why they do it is they've forgotten their identity. They set themselves up as more important than anything else. More important than the kingdom, more important than the family of God, more important than reconciliation. You hurt me, so it's time for some revenge. Man, if you don't think this is you, man, take some time to pray. It is me constantly. The first reason why we do is we've forgotten our identity. And the second reason we do it is because we're just incompetent. So I think so many times, I hate, like, I don't want to sound really like mean, but you're incompetent. And I can be incompetent. But it doesn't have to be that way. So first of all is we've got to remember our identity. Second, we need to grow competent, okay? Let's talk about conflict and competence. Knowing how to respond biblically to conflict leads to peace and flourishing for humanity. Do you guys want to be a part of a family that has peace and flourishing and joy? If you say no, this is not for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 5 through 8. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? I think a lot of times in the church, this is something that we really struggle with, counseling biblically. What does the scripture have to say in this situation? Number one, I don't really want to ask anybody what it has to say because I've got in my head and heart what I want to do, and it's to beat that brother up with my words. Not literally, don't freak out, all right? I'm not, I'm not just punch people. So can it be? Here's the thing is, we have to become competent in Scripture. Proverbs 25, verses 11 and 12, I love this. It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. When you, you come across a guy who's got the right apt word, it pops. It just stands out. Have you ever had an, an older man come in your life and he just speaks a word, an older woman come in your life and speaks a word, and you're like, I've never thought about it like that. That is it. We can all grow that way. We could become that. Now, what does that look like? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge something, okay? Number one, how many church services have you sat in? Hundreds for some of y'all? Hundreds and upon hundreds? How many Bible studies have you guys been a part of? Well, I've done Romans and Philippians and Galatians, right? You've been a part of so many Bibles. How many one-on-one discipleship stuff have you had in your life where people poured into you? Here's the reality. So many of you have sat in on some of this, so many of these things like, like, uh, like services and Bible studies and one-on-one discipleship and accountability groups, and you still don't know what you're doing. So can I just tell you right now, Sunday morning matters, Bible studies are great, one-on-one is super fantastic, why are you still so incompetent? It's because you don't actually care to be on mission. Far too often, you've become a smarter sinner than a more fully in love and devoted saint. Which is more valuable? A man who could speak competently about end times theology or a man who can counsel biblically in marriage, divorce, remarriage, and conflict resolution. And the hot topics of the day can open up scripture and graciously and kindly say, hey, this is what word says and this is what we should do. I don't give a care. Yeah, I got close on that one. <laughs> got close on that one. 
whether you're premillennial, postmillennial, okay, I care about how you're caring for the millennials. Are you teaching them God's word? Or are you just putting labels on them? Are you sharing the truth with your kids? Say, son, this is why we walk with integrity. This is what God has taught us and shown us and shared us. Now, do you got to go to seminary to learn how to do that? No. Do you got to go to the Watermark Institute to learn how to do that? No. Do you got to come sit in my living room and listen to me talk? No. Let me give you four ways that you can learn how to do this, okay? First of all, it starts with devoting daily to God's word and prayer. One of the biggest problems in your life is that you forget the gospel, okay? So let me just encourage you to every single day, remind yourself of the gospel. So when we say devote daily, it's one of our core values at Outpost. What we mean by that is get in the word every single day, every single day. It will transform you, I guarantee it. Let the word wash over you and teach you and correct you and admonish you and encourage you. Read the thing. All right? Read it. Get in it. It will change who you are. Secondly, if you're in community, this should already be happening. If not, you need to be a part of a community where this is happening because you're in danger. Second thing, dress yourself with humility because you ain't as smart as you think you are and invite others to come and counsel you biblically. Let other people come and speak God's truth. Invite it. In my group, I say out loud, somebody share God's word with me. Encourage me. Remind me. What's a better way? You think that maybe you can't be a person who does that? Carson Kleinfeld is a great example that you can. Carson Kleinfeld had not been reading God's word his whole life. But in the last year and a half, has probably read more of the Bible than most of you, has memorized scripture uh, more than most of you, even though he was scared and terrified. And now, more than most of the people in my community group, that brother has a word for you, and that word is from scripture. I'll be sharing things going on in my life, I'll be confessing sin, or I'll be talking about uh, what I've been reading, whatever, and he'll just be like, uh, so I was reading this list last week, I think this would be good for you. And he reads it to me like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Dress yourself with humility, invite others to counsel you biblically. Thirdly, do your best to prepare yourself. It's that simple, okay? What, what does this look like? I want you right now, think of something that you would like a better explanation of when it comes to just living life as a Christian. Think of anything. Somebody holler out one thing right now, do it. What's one thing? Like, I'd like to know a little bit more about this and how this works and how it applies to my life. One subject. Mindset? Okay, mindset. Somebody yell at another one. Sanctification. What the heck does that mean? Okay, somebody else yell at another one. You have no questions, really? How to share the gospel? How do I share the gospel more effectively? Here's the reality. Every one of you have got questions, and you've got loads of them. I put you on the spot, and you don't want to be the one every looks at you. All of you have loads of questions, but the problem is you never seek the answer. You are content to never know. So what can this look like? It can look like this. You got a phone. It's probably got a timer on it. This week, go set the timer for 30 minutes. And I want you to go online and look for every podcast, article, video, sermon about that subject. And in 30 minutes, just listen to some of it. 
30 minutes in a week. Then the next week, you know what you could do? Go review the things that you listen to, and I want you to write one page or some, some information about what your thoughts are on that and how you want to apply that. Then take that to your community group and say, guys, this is what I went and researched, and this is what I think about sharing my faith, or this is what I think about homosexuality, or this is what I think that God's word says about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and I want to lay this before you guys. Would you guys poke holes in it and tell me what you think? I want to counsel people biblically through this. Would you guys help me? I'd love your opinion. And they sit there, and guess what? You get better, they get better, everybody's working together so that you could be ready for that next situation. Bro, it's that easy. You guys will sit on the john for 30 minutes and read Fox News on your phone, and you won't even think about it. And what did you learn? You learned, again, how Tucker Carlson feels about the culture. And it didn't benefit your life in any way, other than maybe made you laugh or feel more self-righteous because you're on the right side, whatever the case may be. Do you guys hear? It's really simple. Just go and do it. Uh, Just to give you an example how we're doing this at Outpost. So we have community group leaders, and we have community group shepherds, and we have our leadership team who are heading to be elders, okay? And we follow a structure of Exodus that we see in Exodus 18. If you guys know of Exodus 18, basically what's happening is Moses has over a million people, and can you imagine a million people in a hot desert? All they eat is manna and quail and water from a rock. Do you think people got some conflict out there? Yeah, this past week, you guys got in conflict over just setting up the barbecue with your wife, and you freaked out, and it wasn't even that hot, and you had meat that was, like, salted, okay? And so... You, yeah, you, got, you get in conflict so easily. So imagine, he's got a million people, but there's only one judge, and that's Moses. And so his father-in-law, Jethro, comes up to him and says, brother, this is not good, right? And everybody would be like, yeah, duh. But what he says next is fantastic. He says, hey, Moses, set, go and find faithful men that you can appoint to oversee thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Okay, so at an outpost, we've got tens, fifties, and a hundred. So what we did is we set leaders that we believe to be faithful who are going to oversee tens, fifties, and hundreds. Our community group leaders, our community group shepherds who oversee community groups, and then the elders who oversee everybody. Now check this out. We go at the first and third Tuesday of every month, we sit down, starting this last Tuesday, we sit down and we take, tackle one specific subject and how these community group leaders can better shepherd and care for you guys. They're learning how to counsel biblically, from their Bibles. So this last Tuesday, we dove in what is eldership? What does it mean to shepherd people? What does scripture have to say about that? And they have two weeks. So not this Tuesday, but the next Tuesday, they all got to come back with a one-page sheet of paper written out, what does it mean to be a biblical shepherd? And they better do their homework. And they better do their homework because you guys need them to do their homework so they can train and shepherd you. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This wasn't happening in Corinth. Verse 6, it says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Guys, it is bringing shame on the church that we cannot respond to our conflict biblically, that we can't talk it out and work it out, that instead of airing it out in coffee shops. Ladies, stop the gossip and go. Go to read Matthew 18 and tell, to see what it tells you to do. It says go one-on-one and talk to your sister. We're not, listen, we have every ability to be able to do this well. You just have to decide to do it. And I'm begging you to do it because it is so much better. It is so good.
But before you do, you need a reminder of your identity. Living in our Christian identity frees us from the need for self-justification and revenge. All right, so before you go, uh, here's the fourth thing you need to know, okay? Do not go and try to find out what Scripture says about something so that you can be really good at the Christian game of stump the chump, all right? Or so that you could just be a smarter sinner. I want you to remember the great commandment. Do you know what it is? You want to go and learn and become more competent in Scripture so you can better love God and love your neighbor. That's the motivation. But in order to do that, we've got to remember our identity. Verse, the second half of verse 7 and verse 8, listen, it says this. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. When we read this verse, I think naturally, your natural self, if you're being honest, is not okay with being wronged and defrauded. At least mine's not. But as a believer, as a saint in Christ, this question is not out of the question. It's actually really good. Because as believers, what do we know about uh, what Jesus says? Luke 9.23. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says this. And he said to all, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Is that just for pastors and missionaries? No, it's for you. He says, take up your cross. He didn't say take up your stuffed animal. He says, take up your cross and follow him. Saints understand that to be called out by Christ means that we will sometimes be treated like Jesus was treated. John 15, 20, he says, remember the word that I've said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When you look at the question that Paul asked, hey, why not be defrauded? Be like, I was already ready for it. If they killed Jesus, I'm ready for whatever they want to bring my way. And if I'm not, I'm seeking it today. We're ready for it. Because suffering because of sin is inevitable. You will suffer. But as you suffer, you do what 1 Peter says. I love what he says here. 1 Peter 2, 21. Guys, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the key. Who's a better judge? The world or God? Who's a better judge? When you go into conflict this week, tomorrow, this afternoon, who's a better judge? You? Or God. You got to choose, friends. Listen to me. Don't turn this, I always say this, don't turn this into a stuffy Christian service where you come in here, you check a box, and you leave, and you're no different. Like the hundreds of other times that you've done this. Make the decision right now. No matter what tomorrow brings, no matter what somebody says or does to me, I am committing to entrust my heart to Jesus. He's a better judge than I am. He suffered like I have. I will and even more so, and he did it for me. This is what's great. Listen to the final bit of this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is amazing. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Hold on. Every one of those statements were identity statements. Right? You're a drunk. You're gay. You're a reviler. You're idolatrous. You're an adulterer. It says such, what does it say? Past tense, were some of you. Hey friends, if you're not a believer and you're in this room and this is your chance to kind of see the church, the church is a people, not a place. The people in this room who are the church, we're sinners. Just like you. But our identity is not in who we were. Our identity is in what Paul says next. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Man, sin is filthy and is broken and I don't think you hate it enough. It destroys. And that filth is all over us. It's like, like blood-stained rags all over us. But by Jesus' work, we're washed. We're washed from the filth of sin. It says that God has sanctified us. You know what that means? It means that he has set us apart. I am no longer just the porn addict. I am no longer just a narcissistic, selfish, manipulative man that I was. I am a washed, sanctified, set apart saint. And you could stick post-it notes on me and they may be true because Though the power of sin has gone in my life, the presence is not. But here's the thing is, you could call me guilty, but what does he say? God has justified you. You know what justified means? It means that he's declared you as not guilty. So in the eyes of the only judge that matters, I'm clean, I'm set apart, and I'm not guilty. When I live that way, I'm able to get my eyes off my belly button and begin to love God and love others. Friends, remember who you are in Christ. Do not forget, because the moment you forget, you turn into the Corinthian church. You start dividing, disorder breaks out, and an outpost will turn into another one of the just, just a big old mess. And it already is a mess, because you're a mess. But God has set us apart and he loves us. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you took my wretched tail and you washed me clean. You sanctified me. You set me apart. You called me not guilty, even though I'm still guilty of sin every day. Thank you. God, would you forgive me? I so quick to judge and so quick to put labels on people and so quick to cast identities on people that is not what you've given to them. Please forgive me. And I pray for all the friends in here, by your spirit's power, convict them if they need to have a conversation like Natalie has to go live as a saint and a lifestyle of dealing with our conflict rather than trying to bring juries around us. And I pray for the friends in this room who have not yet been washed, sanctified, justified. I pray as we sing this song 
that you would show them that even they can have a new identity. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.